from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge. What's your salary? Really, how much money do you make? Too taboo a question. Maybe so, but many people believe that salary transparency plays an important role in pay equity and in closing the gender pay gap. When we are open about what employees are paid, it's going to help people like women who are often paid less than their peers identify when pay discrimination is happening and it will help them avoid experiencing that discrimination. We'll get the goods on that later in the hour. Also, a professor tells us about her recent research that challenges the conventional wisdom that says women aren't as good at negotiating as men are. When you get a deal and you look at the gender differences, then men tend to outperform women. But you're leaving out something very important, and that is the cost of not making a deal. But first... A wide-angle view of salaries in the South, and specifically careers that have recently crossed into the coveted 100,000-plus territory. Here to talk about those six-figure salaries and what having that kind of salary gets and doesn't get in the current economy is Joanne Drilling, national data reporter with American City Business Journals. Joanne, welcome to Do South. Hi, thank you, Leonida. You know, before we get into the South and some North Carolina numbers, can you give us uh, an overview of what's going on nationally with six-figure salaries? Sure, sure. So my colleagues and I at American City Business Journals, um, we analyzed some figures that came recently from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And we discovered that 14 occupations have uh, recently pushed above the six-figure threshold. And that's nationally. And that includes everything from commercial pilots to materials engineers, nuclear technicians, and things like that. And so then looking further, we started figuring out which ones in southern cities had uh, had changed. And it was pretty exciting. Now, these uh, salaries that started soaring, you know, during the pandemic are yes. even moving up. Yeah. So that's why I guess it's such a big deal and quite noticeable. For sure. And I think, um, you know, we, we already had some of the higher level salaries are going up. Computer network support specialists in, in your area, in Durham Chapel Hill, increased 72% from 61000 to just over 104000 So that's pretty phenomenal, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal gains there. Yeah, it makes me think, are these the types of jobs that you can't do at home? Like, no more staying at home, working virtually. I guess you have to go in to do these types of jobs. Well, I mean, some I would say yes. And I think a lot of times it does really depend on the employer. But a lot of the the jobs that saw big gains were things in engineering, definitely some big gains in energy jobs, things that involve electricity and stuff like that. So probably not so much there. But I do think some of the of the knowledge worker jobs, uh, things like research analyst, uh, you know, computer support, um, sec- you know, cybersecurity, things like that, definitely those probably have a little bit more um, flexibility for for hybrid work. And I also noticed that the the larger metros have the, the highest concentration of these six figure incomes. I guess that's no big surprise um, that it's we're not seeing it like across the board in 
rural counties and parts of the region, are we? Right. So so definitely the big metros have the most. And a lot of that is due to cost of living. So for example, um, you know, we saw we in the total number of six-figure jobs, New York City has about 171 versus like Durham Chapel Hill has 72. So it's definitely less in smaller communities, but the thinking is that they're paying people a little bit less because it costs a little bit less to live there. Okay, let's talk some Southern numbers and Southern cities now that have, you know, that some numbers that you crunch in these $100,000 a year plus jobs. So I guess I, my interest peaked when I first looked at the city of Charlotte. Sure, sure, definitely. And, you know, Charlotte is not even like the most, you know, the, no. the most Im- impressive, believe it or not. I mean, you know, the handful of jobs it, right in there and the 28, 29% increase in uh, salaries. And so like statisticians went from about 79,000 to 101,000. Manufacturing sales reps um, from about 82,000 to 105,000. Nuclear technicians from 99,000 to about 104,000. So you know, not these are all huge, things I can't gains. do. First of all, I, I know, you know these. Right. Are the, it seems like you need some real training and education to do these yes. jobs. Yes, for sure, for sure. Amazing. What about? Um, I guess are the jobs different in some southern cities? Like we look at Nashville, that have what like now fifty five occupations that pay a median wages of at least six figures, or even Birmingham, Alabama. Definitely. And I think it, you know, of course, it depends on kind of like what the what the industry is in different places. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, you look at the triangle area and I think, you know, I am based in Cincinnati, so I'm not speaking with any kind of experience. But I think from what I've heard, that's a very heavily, you know, research area, which is why we see 15 jobs adding to the six figure club in Durham Chapel Hill alone with some gains like in the 60s and and 70 percent increase. I mean, I think you know, these are not necessarily the, you know, high level research jobs, but it's definitely the support staff. It's research analysts, it's uh, technical writers, it's physicians assistants, and even like fundraising managers. So people around, you know, around who are supporting that research are definitely moving up into that, that higher tier. Okay, now we're hearing the good news, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. You know, um, when you dig into the numbers and the careers and the the different jobs. Um, were you surprised by anything? I think in some, I was actually surprised a little bit about the gains in energy, how many nuclear kinds I of know. jobs, you know, moved up here. And it's something that I think we don't really think about, especially, you know, for those of us with kids, you know, and we're we're learning about what they're interested in and what their opportunities are. You know, we're not really thinking like nuclear technician, power plant manager, but you know, those jobs are increasingly, you know, increasingly valuable. So I think, you know, with the expansion of electric vehicle infrastructure, power line installers are making more and more, and the need for those people is incredible. Now, tell me more about the numbers, the years that we're looking at. I guess um, you have some even more recent statistics. I guess these numbers are for 2021 and 2022, you know, like sort of right right after the pandemic. But um, I mean, do we still see this continuing now? We we do, we do. And so um, looking at some more recent Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, we see that pay is still up in a lot of communities, up 3.5% in Nashville, uh, 2.9% in Charlotte, 
Mm. Uh, let's see, 0.4% in Raleigh, 5.3% uh, in Durham, Chapel Hill, and then down just a little bit in Birmingham, uh, down 1.7%. Well, I'm talking here on Due South with Joanne Drilling, national data reporter with American City Business Journals, about six-figure salaries in the South. One thing I've also noticed, and I'm not sure if you looked at this, but all these cities that are seeing, you know, dozens of occupations that are now tipping over $100,000 a year, it seems that a university is nearby. Right. And I think I think that does make sense. I think, you know, you're bringing a lot of people to a community and then, you, you know, the community also these these kinds of companies like spring up around them. They know that talent is plentiful and, you know, it might be easier to get, you know, new graduates to come and work nearby than it would be for them to relocate six or seven hours away. Mm. So what are the trends that you're you're looking at even closer, you know, when you see these numbers for our region? I think overall, we're really looking at trends that are showing that AI technology is probably a real fear for knowledge workers of a lot of different levels. Um, there was a report from Goldman Sachs that was released last April that suggested that AI technology may soon expose up to 300 million full-time jobs oh my. to automation. And so I think you know, over and over again, when we talk to HR companies, you know, not just me, but all of my colleagues, we hear over and over again that people need to think about what they have to offer a new company. And companies need to think about, you know, where can they cut cost? And so, um, you know, a recent report from a, uh, an HR company called Gusto found that, you know, hiring has slipped down to 2% in December of 2023. And for reference, we started January at 6%. And so employers are slowing down on hiring. They're really thinking about, you know, how can they do the most with, honestly, the least amount of people sometimes. And I think workers are looking at layoffs. They're seeing that happen. And they're starting to say, maybe I'll just stay where I am. Maybe I mm. don't want to be, you know, the first one in at this employee or at this new employer where I would be end up being the first one out. You know, obviously, you know, we're talking about like a smaller chunk of the overall population when we're looking at these jobs where people are paid over $100,000 a year. Before we wrap this up, anything about middle-income jobs? Sure, sure. Trades become are becoming increasingly important. Again, if we look at AI, there are a lot of trade jobs that are not going to be done by robots anytime soon. And there was a report from Payscale. Um, it was an end-of-the-year report that was released in December, and they were looking at um, trades that were showing north of 20% growth. And those included hairdressers, uh, roofers, fitness mm. coaches, even plumbers. Wow. We used to think $100,000 a year put you solidly in the middle class. But um, I, know. I guess um, I know. It's, it's, it's not seen that way now, is it? Well, money is not going as far. I think, um, you know, inflation was up about 3.4% from December 2022 to December 2023. And I think that 100000 doesn't buy quite as much as it used to. Well, thank you, Joanne Drilling, National Data Reporter with American City Business Journals, for being with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonita. I'm Leonita Inge, and this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge, and this is Due South. 
We're talking about salaries today, and I'm here with Professor Ashley Shelby Rosette of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She's a pioneering scholar at the intersection of leadership, gender, and race. Dr. Rosette, you did some research recently that really caught my eye about specific circumstances when women might outperform men when it comes to negotiations, which really bumps up against some of the conventional wisdom. And I want to get into that shortly. But first, um, can you sort of like set the stage on what we know in general about gender and negotiations? Sure. Um, so first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here on Do South. And so um, in general, we know quite a bit about gender and negotiations. We have been studying the phenomenon for more than 40 years now. But in the context of our research, probably the most relevant research is research and, as you mentioned, conventional wisdom that suggests that women tend to attain lower economic outcomes than men in business negotiations. Now, context does matter, and this doesn't happen all the time, but all else being equal, it's a consistent finding that men tend to outperform women. They claim bigger pieces of the pie. They get more financial uh, resources in business negotiations. Now, these findings are usually explained by the social roles that women and men tend to occupy. So men are socialized to behave more agentically than women, which means that they have been socialized to be more assertive. In charge. That's right. More competitive. Talk uh, back. Talk back. More Don't fo- get in trouble. That's right. Don't get in or get in trouble, right? And fo- focus on yourself, right? Yes. This is what we tell men to do. Women, however, are socialized a little bit differently. They're socialized to behave more communally than men. This means that they're expected to be more caring, more thoughtful, more sincere, more kind, more warm, and more relationship-oriented. Now, you can see how when we think about... That we don't need the money, undoubtedly, because maybe you have a man that has the money. I'm just thinking of the years when women weren't weren't even in the workplace um, like they probably should have been because men were expected to bring home the money and take care of the family. That's absolutely right. That's where those social roles come from. Men as being the breadwinner and the woman as being the homemaker. And even though we know that society has changed quite a bit, those stereotypes that derive from those social roles still play out in the workplace. And we also see them playing out in negotiations. So you can see how those behaviors that are affiliated with doing well when negotiating business deals are those agentic behaviors that are more likely to be associated with men rather than the relational behaviors that are associated with women. In the context of this negotiation research, what's most relevant is that the research demonstrates that when we make more assertive offers— more extreme offers in business deals where we're going back and forth and trying to claim that biggest, bigger piece of the pie, we actually do better. We have to act like men. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that the prescriptive advice in terms of doing best at the negotiation table is to be more assertive, and that tends to be affiliated with more male behavior. But that doesn't work for women. 
right? Because when we're assertive, then the backlash comes. So one, we're not being congruent with the expectation of the communal roles. And when we attempt to behave in an agentically, agentic manner, then what happens is that we get backlash, both social and economic backlash, because we aren't liked. And then there's punishment that then comes from engaging in that behavior that's incongruent with those social roles. So there's a pervasive idea that says, you know, women just aren't as good, you know, at negotiating as men, especially when it comes to their own salaries, you know. And it makes me think, you know, I, I'll i tell you, I don't think I'm a good negotiator, uh, job or salary, because I'm here talking to you right now and not in my home studio, you know. So undoubtedly, I don't negotiate on behalf of myself and what I would <laughs> want and need, you know, because— I want to keep my job, I guess. I don't know. That's what we're, I guess, definitely socialized to believe. Oh, we don't want to rock the boat too much or else we may not even have a job in the long run. So um, some have even blamed women for this pay gap that we have, that we just, we're just not good negotiators. So you're saying that's not true. I'm saying that's definitely not the case. Um, And I think what we show is that much of that research has presumed certain things. And most importantly, most of that research has left out certain things. So that research is based upon the idea of actually making a deal. So when you get a deal and you look at the gender differences, then men tend to outperform women. But you're leaving out something very important, and that is the cost of not making a deal. Now, this research that talks about men being better negotiators than women hinges on actually getting a deal. But there's a high cost to not getting a deal, and that's where our research comes in. So, and of course, there are going to be nuances on a per-person basis. This research is about what the overall research shows. And I do want to know, like, for example, um, when you looked at women and negotiations that you have a subset of black women? Did you look for women of color, for example? In this research, the specific research, I did not look at race. Now, to be clear, I am an intersectional scholar, and much of my research, especially with regards to leadership, looks at the idea of uh, intersectionality and what happens when we impose race over well-worn leadership um, paradigms and findings. We didn't do this in this research. I think that's something that we could do in the future. What about transgender people, for example, queer folks, not included in this? Unfortunately, not included in this particular research. And that's just simply indicative of um, where we are with regards to gender research. Much of the research and the empirical findings is unfortunately on men and women. We have a lot of catching up to do with regards to non-binary identifying individuals. So definitely work to do in that domain. But much of the research is unfortunately based upon binary women and men, um, binary gender considerations, and that's where we built our research. But again, I think this notion of cross-sectionally and looking at things that overlap definitely in the future and should be considered, but was not considered in this particular research. Now, with that said, there is a lot of, there is um, kind of, I would say, a, a burgeoning aspect of negotiations where race is being considered, where we know some things about Black negotiators. For example, we know that white negotiators, based upon some research done by Morella Hernandez and Derek Avery, don't expect Black negotiators to negotiate. And as a result, when they do, there's actually a penalty 
that can occur. And that means that penalty looks like perhaps getting a lower salary. Yeah, like you should be happy that you're even invited here. You you have the job already, you know. What more do you want? That's right. That's exactly what they find. Now, there can also be some benefits with regards to race. So my colleagues, Angelica Lee and uh, my friend Trudy Desai, they look at Black women in negotiations and show there actually can be some benefits with regards to race. And that is oftentimes Black women are prescribed as being dominant. And you can see how that prescription can work well in negotiations. And sometimes that means that they actually get more in the negotiation because they're expected to demand more. And there's also research on Asians in the, in the, in the workplace as well. Jackson Liu has looked at that. And so it's, but it's definitely burgeoning. You know, 10 years ago, there was relatively, there was almost nothing. And so we've seen the increase of the study of race in negotiations, but not to the depths of the study of gender and negotiations. Well, I'm speaking with Professor Ashley Shelby Rosette with Duke University's Fuqua School of Business about her recent work on how, in some circumstances, women have and can outperform men in salary negotiations. Well, you and some colleagues recently published an article in the Journal of Applied Psychology called Asking for Less But Receiving More. Women avoid impasses and outperform men when negotiators have weak alternatives. So you started this paper off with this quote (laughs) by Benjamin Franklin. And I don't know if you have it or if you'd like me to read it. So actually, I do know that quote. It is one that I've used since I have been teaching negotiations, which is around uh, almost 20 years now. And it's by Ben Franklin. And it says that the worst outcome is when, by overreaching greed, no bargain is struck and a trade that could have been advantageous to both parties does not come off at all. Wise man. Indeed. But it also suggests that the issues that we have been grappling with aren't new, but we've been dealing with them for centuries. So you looked specifically at impasses in negotiations. What does that mean, and why was it important to look at? Yeah, so impasse in a negotiation is quite simply just not getting a deal. And it's important to look at not getting a deal because there's a cost to not getting a deal. When we don't include impasse in our negotiations research, our findings are really skewed, and they don't tell the whole story. When I think of an impasse, it seems to probably, you know, leave a bad taste in both parties' mouths. You know, if you can't, you know, settle this negotiations and then you, you leave the table, I don't know, not trusting each other from then on. You know, one thinks the other maybe doesn't respect me and want to pay me what I deserve. And then the other is like, oh, well, maybe they're greedy. And um, so I, I, can, I can imagine the work environment after that. I think there's some truth to that. Um, The notion of impasses and how you feel about impasses relies on what caused the impasse. Sometimes an impasse can be amicable, and we just choose to go our separate ways. You have a better candidate. I uh, have a a better job. And so, you know, respectfully, this just isn't going to work out for either one of us. But 
one sometimes the basis of an impasse can be an assertive behavior, the assertive behavior that oftentimes men can be rewarded for at the negotiation table. And so that assertive behavior can can sometimes actually backfire because we have people who, as you mentioned, uh, they interpret that assertive behavior as overreaching greed. Uh, it can uh, cause conflict. It can cause friction. It can cause distrust sometimes. So that assertive behavior that can lead to a favorable outcome can also lead to damage to the relationship. In giving these examples of these weak alternatives, <laughs> you know, these no offers, lower pay, it makes me think of a girlfriend of mine. She was, a, I felt, a big-time TV journalist in Detroit, and she wanted to leave Detroit. She wanted to go back home. I'm trying to think if she, if her, one of her parents was ill. So she said, you know what, Leonita, I'm going to take a job for less money. I'm going to go to a smaller market. You know, like she totally went down to get what she wanted overall was to be in a whole different part of the country. And so she was willing to do that. And we were all saying, no, no. And she said, oh, it's going to, and she was the winner. She felt definitely she was the winner in the end because they got a superior talent, <laughs> you know, and they probably saw fast that they needed to up her salary whether she asked for it or not. That's right. Yeah, sometimes the negotiations, it's not about money. There are all kinds of other preferences and priorities that individuals can consider, and that sounds like that was the case with your friend. And on the outside, those of us that value a deal based upon economics, we see that that doesn't make sense. But internally for that person, it makes a whole lot of sense with regards to their perhaps self-validation, their self-worth, or perhaps their own mental well-being. Well, you know, in reading this research, there was something else that definitely caught my eye. How did you come up with the idea to analyze the data from the television show Shark Tank. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, that was a lot of fun. And so um, we were initially looking at women entrepreneurs and um, trying to get a significant number of women entrepreneurs to study, you can imagine, might be a little bit difficult, if you will. But the Shark Tank Forum actually provided an awesome um, resource with a plethora of women uh, entrepreneurs. And so in this research, we coded and analyzed the data from the first nine seasons of Shark Tank, giving us a significant number of women negotiators to compare against uh, their male counterparts. Wow. Anything unexpected happened there, you know, either collecting or analyzing all of this data. Were you surprised that the women um, come off um, as better negotiators or great, good negotiators? Well, I think let's define that, right? Okay. And so the idea of being— Did they ex- get the deal on Shark Tank? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is women were more likely to get a deal. They were less likely to impasse, but not for the reasons that you think. Wow. It was not because they were more assertive, which is what the research tells us, but it actually is because they were more relationship-oriented. Now, here's the controversial part, okay? Mm-hmm. And that is women were more relationship-oriented, which actually caused them to ask for less, which increased the likelihood that they would actually get a deal. Now, some people may look at that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you really telling me that women are better negotiators because they got less? And I'm saying, yes, because we have to look at what is the value of not getting Getting a deal. deal. Exactly. Okay. So tell me about this second primary study that used an incentive 
compatible, computer mediated, <laughs> <laughs> you know, single issue disruptive negotiation scenario in which, you know, you kind of took a look at things that way. Yeah. So the great thing about using the Shark Tank data is that it provides external validity. What the study two does is it provides internal validity. Here, we were able to actually manipulate whether you had a strong alternative or a weak alternative, because we predict that this advantage will occur when there is a weak alternative, meaning when you have a whole lot to lose, that's when we think women are going to do better. Now, when you have a strong alternative, we don't think that this predicted finding that we have will actually come about. And so the second study allowed us to do this. So in this particular study, now we're not in the Shark Tank arena anymore. We're back in the salary negotiations, right? And so um, all the negotiators or all the participants were assigned to the role of job candidate. And they then had to negotiate with a recruiter. Now, they were told that they either had a strong alternative, a current offer in hand of $85,000. Or they had no offer in hand, and that would be worth zero. And then they were saying, now you have this offer, you're negotiating roughly between $85,000 and $135,000. How much would you like to counteroffer um, in this particular, or how much would, would you like to ask to be paid in this particular negotiation? I'm, I'm taking notes. Okay. Because I, I need to know, I need to know all of this, sure. especially you know it's about you know you know if women have a strong alternative, the negotiation will definitely be a lot different. Um, yes and no. Okay. Yes and no. So strong alternatives in general give you power. Right. Right. So if you are going into a negotiation, Leonita, and you have three job offers already, you got some power because you're not going to accept anything less than the worst of those three job offers. Right. Right. Now. If you go into a job offer and you've been out of work for a while, you know, uh, rent is due or the mortgage is due and you don't have any job offer. Well, then that's a little less power. It's a more dire um, circumstance where we see the difference is when that weak alternative, when those alter, when that um, when you can walk away, and you don't have very much to walk away to. We don't actually in our research see a difference when there is a strong alternative between men and women. Well, you know, we did not even get to, I wanted to ask about industry. Like, does it matter? Uh, Maybe we can quickly talk about that. So does it matter what industry you're in? Like whether you're in academia or maybe you have a cousin that works in manufacturing at a big chocolate company, you know, like, does it matter? Yeah, so we coded for industry Mm. and our results are held regardless of the industry in which which they were occupied. We also coded for the masculinity of the industry because we know that sometimes ah. female-led companies don't do so well in a masculine-led industry, and we found that our results held even controlling for uh, for the type of industry as well, the masculinity of the industry. What are the takeaways from this research, and what do you actually recommend to women? I guess and men. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really important because it does not have, even though we focus on gender, uh, the takeaways don't have to be gender specific. Um, so I see th- some key takeaways. Um, number one, I would say that men may focus on claiming value, but women in our research tended to focus on trying to get a deal. And when the cost to not getting a deal is high, women actually may come out on top. However, In negotiations, having a relationship orientation does not necessarily have to be restricted to women. 
Men can be taught to have a relationship orientation and can do just as well in these types of negotiations as women can. And we expect them to. That's what I say. Well, thank you very much, um, Dr. Ashley Shelby Rosette of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and all the work that you've been doing in the fields of leadership, gender, and race. And thank you for this um, this latest piece of work. You know, negotiations makes the world go round, right? Indeed it does. We negotiate every day. Thank you. Pleasure. I'm Leonita Inge. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge, and this is Due South. We continue our hour-long conversation about salaries and payday by talking about a term I just learned about not too long ago, and it really made an impression on me. Salary transparency. I'm a server. How much do you make? About 50000 I'm a software developer. How much do you make? I make 84000 Is that like base salary? Yeah, base salary. And then I got, I think, a $4,000 bonus nice. last year. Do you feel fairly compensated for what you do? <laughs> TikToks from Salary Transparent Street have gone viral as Hannah Williams breaks that once unbreakable taboo of asking people, strangers, how much money they make. And salary transparency isn't a trend. It's a tool being used to promote pay equity for women, people of color, people with disabilities, anyone who has faced bias in the workplace. State governments are getting in on the action, too. Some have recently required employers to post salary ranges for the jobs that they're hiring for. Here to break this all down for us is Ursula Mead, founder and CEO of InHerSight.com, which is based here in Durham, North Carolina. Ursula, welcome to Do South. Thanks, Leonita. I'm happy to be here. So pay transparency or salary transparency can mean a couple of different things. Can you break this down for us right now? Pay transparency is when companies openly share information about pay and salary with their employees. So employees don't just have access to information about their own wages, but they also have more insight into the pay of their peers and of their colleagues. It's essentially the opposite of pay secrecy, which is sort of the status quo. The way of the world, yeah, pay secrecy. (laughs) It has been the way of the world for a long time when that pay information is kept under wraps or employees are discouraged either formally or informally from talking about their pay. And that has been the case for many, many decades now. I wonder what made companies finally open the door, or as we say, make the HR offices open the door. When we look at it big picture, pay transparency is a way for employers to create better, more open, more equal, more fair work environments. There's a lot of good that can come out of embracing pay transparency. These characteristics of a work environment, they lead to greater employee satisfaction. They can lead to higher engagement among employees. They can help 
employees be more collaborative. And these all lead to things like retention and productivity and all of those things that drive good business performance. Now, I'd like to say that everyone is jumping in and embracing pay transparency because they see all of these potential benefits. But the truth is pay transparency is on the rise because there are increasingly state and city laws that are requiring pay transparency. So how does pay transparency connect to pay equity? You know, that's what I want to find out. How can it be like leverage to reduce pay gaps specifically for women and people of color? Yeah, so pay transparency, I think you described it as as a tool that can be used to reduce the wage gap. When we are open about what employees are paid, it's going to help people like women who are often paid less than their peers identify when pay discrimination is happening, and it will help them avoid experiencing that discrimination. It can also help them know when to advocate for themselves and help them make better decisions about where to work and where to apply. What we see from research is that when we have pay transparency laws, either here or abroad, we do see a reduction in the wage gap. And I think studies have shown that that wage gap is, has been reduced anywhere from 1% to 4%. But one thing to note is that it's not necessarily because women and underrepresented talent is getting paid more, but because this transparency is then leading to companies bringing in line Uh, let's say, male salaries and male wages and reducing those, which actually can have the unintended consequence of reducing the overall average wage. But it is effective in narrowing that gap. So you mentioned how, you know, there's some legislation. Do you just have an idea of which states are doing this right now? Right now, we don't have any comprehensive federal pay transparency laws here in the U.S. So that means that these pay transparency laws are going to be at the state level or the city level, or again, they can be just policies that are adopted by individual companies that want to promote this kind of better work environment and more fair work environment. Um, But some of the states that already have pay transparency laws in place are places like California, Colorado, Maryland, Washington, New York City is an example of a city that has pay transparency laws. I think in 2023, around six states passed new transparency laws. And now in 2024, there are several more pending decisions this year already in places like Massachusetts and Michigan. And that total right now is somewhere around 20 states with some kind of pay transparency law in place. I will note that North Carolina has not yet passed a pay transparency law. Yes, I was trying to count the states. You mentioned the West, the North, the Midwest. (laughs) I didn't hear anything South. Yeah, North Carolina uh, is not yet on that list, but we do have a law that prohibits employers from asking job candidates about their salary history. 
And this is actually sort of another side of the same coin, and it can also be helpful in improving pay equity and reducing that wage gap. And what this means is that when a candidate is applying for a job, an employer is not allowed to ask, what was your prior salary or what were you making in your last role? And we know that when employers ask about salary history, it has negative effects and disproportionately affects women and underrepresented minority candidates because if salary history is the basis for compensation with a new job, these candidates are essentially carrying with them any prior pay discrimination or history of working in lower paying jobs. And that really can perpetuate pay inequality and then the wealth gap long term. Yes, it does. I remember the days when I would just, oh, can I please make my age? You know, you know, <laughs> not even thinking about the job or what I brought to the job or my experience in education. But I guess I was paid so low. I was like, oh, I'll just take my age. How about that? <laughs> I mean, but those are the old days, and I know better. I'm speaking with <laughs> Ursula Mead, founder and CEO of InHerSite.com, and we're talking about pay transparency on Due South. You know, um, some organizations are, like, doing this voluntarily, and I don't know if it's more organizations or, like, Fortune 500 companies not doing it, but... I'm thinking maybe nonprofits. Who's actually jumping on the bandwagon with pay transparency? Oh, that's a great question. It's interesting. When we look at the companies that are out there promoting pay transparency policies, we're often seeing a lot of smaller, fast-growing, earlier-stage tech companies that see this as a way to not just promote fairness in the workplaces, but also be more competitive for talent, especially younger talent, where this is uh, really in high demand. I think what we're seeing is certainly the younger generations really are looking for work environments where there is a lot of trust, where they can feel like they are being treated fairly. And the Tech companies, which are often sort of leaders in some of these competitive benefits, are using pay transparency as a way to attract that really discerning talent. You know, this can be messy too, can it? You know, like maybe some companies, you know, now they're voluntarily taking part in this, but maybe some workers really get mad. You know, they feel cheated. Uh, Maybe they they don't want their colleagues to know how much they make. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any examples where it just didn't go well being so transparent? Well, actually, anecdotally, I have personally experienced how difficult it can be for companies that are trying to make this transition. Uh, At one point, I worked for a company that tried to switch to releasing salary bans or salary ranges And uh, it was a pretty painful process. Like you said, people felt cheated. People were upset. People considered changing jobs. Essentially, all of the things that they were trying to avoid or counteract, people were experiencing really in the short term. It was very disruptive. And in pretty short order, the company actually rolled it back. Mm. And in the short term, 
when you are in an environment where pay is not equitable and there has been a lot of pay secrecy, that transition to pay transparency can be a very painful process. That's why I, I'm really encouraged when I see earlier stage companies adopting this from the start, because like with most things, if you address it early on and you make it part of the culture, it becomes something that's easier to carry forward as you grow. But if you don't put those policies in place early, then it can be a very painful process when you're trying to transition, especially if something's been in place for thousands and tens of thousands of employees for 10 or 20 years. But I will say that even if it is something that is painful and difficult to manage, I don't see this as a good reason to avoid or rollback changes like that company that I was referencing. The initial sting of ripping off the Band-Aid mm. is going to be painful, but it is temporary. And in the long run, transparency has the potential to solve more problems than it's creating. And I, I, I truly believe that we can reach that reality faster and with more permanence if more states and companies do sign on. Um, one of the things that I would like to provide some more information around is what exactly pay transparency looks like for different companies and in different states, because it can take different forms depending on the laws and the requirements. So sometimes it means that employers are required to include salary ranges in their job postings. And this is a pretty common form yeah, I've of I've seen that a lot, of course. Yes, and actually, um, you know, some of the major job platforms have reported that between 2020 and 2023, the percent of job postings with salary ranges doubled. It went from somewhere just under 20% to around 40%, which is a really big leap. And this is, you know, you're looking for a job you find one that you think is a good fit, and you can see right there the range that you can expect. That's one form of pay transparency. It's a common one in the pay transparency laws. Um, but another example is when employers are required maybe not to share it in the posting, but to share salary ranges during the hiring process when they're engaging with an individual candidate. Or another example would be uh, that some employers in some states are required to disclose employee salary ranges if an employee requests it. So these mm -hmm. are all different variations of pay transparency. So it can take a lot of different forms. So any surprises, like say from the research or from your conversations with employers and employees when it comes to um, salary, transparency, and of course, pay equity. Uh, yeah, there are a couple things that I'll note that I think are interesting. One is a study by PayScale that found that employees, especially the younger employees, are more likely to leave within the first six months at a company when there isn't pay transparency. And what they noted was that the younger workers are more motivated to change jobs for larger salaries especially if they see those higher pay ranges advertised in jobs and they don't at the same time understand why they are at the salary range that they are at. And that is when they decide to leave. And 
I think generationally, it's interesting to think about how much pay transparency matters to younger people. Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, maybe even 10, pay transparency was something that we were looking for and we wanted, but it wasn't at the top of the list. And right. now, at the top of the list was having a job. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And now employees, they really value knowing where they stand. And if they don't know where they stand or why, they leave because they can, or at least they believe they can, find that elsewhere. And you mentioned the Salary Transparent Street account on TikTok. You know, I think this is a really great example of how things are changing. You know, the bigger goal of that account is to get people the pay they deserve and to encourage more states and companies to promote this kind of pay transparency. And as you noted, they're getting a ton of traction and the host is really doing a fabulous job. And what she's doing is she's creating a safe, positive and comfortable space to share salary information. And I think we see a lot of examples of this on TikTok in general of building communities for supporting each other and sharing ideas and information that people haven't wanted to talk about publicly in the past. Sharing salary data isn't new. We have a lot of databases where we've anonymously submitted our job titles and our locations and how much we're being paid. And those are really rich, powerful databases that we can use in things like negotiations. But the act of sharing openly on video is an innovation. And when people see each other, they don't feel as alone doing it themselves. And they can also visibly see things like race and gender and how those things come into play when it comes to pay. Ursula Mead is founder and CEO of InHerSight.com. This is Due South. Due South is a production of WUNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Quilla. Jeff Tiberi is my co-host. I'm Leonida Inge. <laughs>